Thanks for finding us. This is a message recorded at Fairfax Assembly in Bakersfield, California. You can find out more at fairfaxassembly.com. I heard of a lady who uh, for years, literally years, number of years, every night she worried that with every little noise it was a burglar coming in the house. She was ultra paranoid about burglars coming in the house. And so every time there was anything like a noise, she was up and at it and wanted to know what it was all about. She lived that way for a long time. Every noise, she was just sure it was somebody breaking in. Well, one particular evening, there was a loud bang, a real one, and husband went downstairs to check on the noise, and sure enough, he got down there just as a guy was coming in through the window. And so he said to the burglar, good evening. Uh, why don't you follow me upstairs because my wife has been waiting 10 years to meet you. She was a worrier. Well, we're starting a series today about questions Jesus asked and you should answer. Questions Jesus asked and you should answer. By some counts... There are 295 questions from the lips of Jesus in the Gospels. That's a lot of questions for such a small document. Before we look at one of his questions, which is what we're going to do today in the next few weeks, uh, maybe we've got a question of our own. Why did he ask so many questions? 295 is a lot. Did he ask questions because he was ignorant of things he didn't know he really did not know is that why could you say jesus was clueless about certain things and had to ask questions to get clarification why was he asking so many questions did he have no access to answers any other way but he had to ask it's not likely is it it's not likely we've got enough teachers here this morning they could tell us that questions can be used as a teaching device and a good one sometimes. Good teachers sometimes ask good questions. You think about it in the classroom setting, the learning setting, they stimulate interest. You ask a question, you're being able to pull people in. Helps to clarify thinking when you ask questions. You reduce mistakes. It's kind of the leave no stone unturned approach. So you ask questions. You can use questions to diffuse a volatile situation or a difficult situation. Even a traumatic situation can be diffused by asking questions. I was outside the other day in front of the office uh, unloading some stuff from, from the truck. And a guy came up that we have tried over the years to help. He is a He's been clean and sober for about two years now, but up until then he was a thoroughgoing drunk, but we have managed to help him, got him into Teen Challenge and some other things, and now he's attending another church faithfully. But he came up, and he was just a mess. He was just weeping. He was just crying, and he crumpled against the front of the building. He was crying so hard. And I said, Aaron, what is wrong? And between sobs, he began to tell me that his love life, he has a girlfriend, has gone south. And she has left him, and she has left him brokenhearted. 
And so I asked him a question that seemed to start to clear things up. By the end of the discussion, he left happy and waving, saying, I feel a whole lot better now, but I, I just asked him a little question through his tears when he told me how he was heartbroken and the girl had left him. I said, do you think that makes you special? We've all been there. We've all been thrown over by somebody. You're not the only guy like that in the world. Do you think it makes you special? Well, you can use questions that way. Think about your doctor. You go to see him or her, and, and you sit down there on that little paper-covered table, and then they begin to ask all kinds of questions. Where does it hurt? How long? Mostly at night, mostly in the morning, when you swallow, when you don't. All kinds of questions they're asking. Why are they doing that? Well, they're, they're asking all of those questions to better understand the problem. And you can use questions that way. You can use questions to connect with people. We call them icebreakers. Jesus used questions to express emotions, sometimes disgust came through one of his questions, or amazement, or he used them to introduce a, a story, or, or sometimes he used a question to silence his critics or even to rebuke them with a question. The point is, he had a point with his questions, but why did he use the question method? Why didn't he just come out and say it if he had something to say? Why questions? Let's turn it on its head a little bit and probe. Go back to teachers that use questions. Why do some teachers not like questions? Well, it may be because they don't know their subject very well. And if you scratch very much below the surface, you've tapped them out and they don't have any more to give and they don't know their subject. Why, why some political figures, why do sometimes the politicians, uh, no questions, no questions at this time. Why is that? It's because questions aren't safe, that's why. You've got no idea what kind of answer you might get with questions. Jesus, though, was always in control, so that wouldn't have been a problem for him, that they wouldn't have been safe. Questions are used by comics to set up a joke. They're used by philosophers. Socrates and Plato made a, an absolute career out of asking questions. Scientists ask questions, but Jesus is the questioner, 295 of them. But do you realize that he never asked a question because he needed to know the answer? Just let that hang there for a minute. Do you realize that he never did it to connect with his audience? It wasn't a device. It wasn't a technique with him. With Jesus, questions were razor-sharp scalpels in the expert hands of a skilled surgeon. And with questions, he is delicately cutting through things so we can have a new level of understanding and we can be healed on some level. We just finished talking about the seven letters to the seven churches, the opening chapters in the book of Revelation, and there's a common phrase in all of those letters that we read together the last several weeks. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Let her hear. 
I saw one modern translation that put it this way. Are you listening? Really listening? Effective questions from Jesus cause effective listening. So questions Jesus asks and you should answer. And today his question is, why do you worry? Matthew 6, you'll want to turn there. Here's Jesus. We catch him in the middle of his sermon on the mount. Remember when you're reading through these opening chapters of Matthew, the great sermon on the mount, that what you're not looking at is a prescription. A doctor writes a prescription. Here, take this and it'll have this effect. You'll get better. That is not what these chapters are. That's not the Sermon on the Mount. It's not a prescription. Do these things and you'll be okay. But rather, they're descriptive. These are the ways you will behave when the Spirit of God has His way with you. This is what life will look like in the kingdom, in that place where the king is in charge, however much he's in charge of your life. So we're reading a descriptive passage of how we should be someday. Verse number 19, chapter 6, I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. It goes like this, Jesus speaking, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's not our topic today, but so the question there really is, where's my heart right now? He goes on in verse 24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. Here's the point, you cannot serve God and wealth, stuff, accumulated stuff. For this reason, I say to you, he goes on with the discussion, do not be worried, there it is, about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, or for your body as to what you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Of course it is. Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon, in all of his glory, clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today, tomorrow thrown into a furnace, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith, do not worry then saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles, those that are outside my promise, eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow. There's worry again. For tomorrow will care for itself each day has enough trouble of its own, and you don't even have to be fond of Jesus to know that that last phrase is indeed very true. Each day has enough trouble of its own. 
Well, it's a long passage, but he's speaking there. And his question for us today is, why worry? Why worry? Why do you worry? That's uh, not an easy question. Here's another one that's not easy, but it's maybe easier than why worry is, what do I worry about? What do you worry about? Well, we worry about having enough, don't we? Am I going to have enough to get through? We, we worry about things that we're responsible for. What else do we worry about? Well, we worry about how am I, how are we going to make it? We worry about how other people see us. How will I appear? How do I look? How do other people perceive me? We worry about having enough, don't we? Look at that verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. He's not saying don't prepare. We should prepare. But he's saying don't accumulate more than you really need. Don't accumulate more than you really need. There's a principle there. It goes all the way back to Israel's earliest days when they begin to learn to trust or not learn to trust God. Every day they, they could go out and there was food on the ground. All you had to do was go out and pick it up. And they were told, there are certain days, don't, don't, don't take more than you need, but take enough for two days. Because the next day is the Sabbath, and I won't be doing this on the Sabbath. So get enough for two. There were other times when they were told, get enough just for today. Don't overdo it. But there were, of course, people that hoarded it. And they went out and they gathered baskets full, enough for a month or more. And they found that by the time the next day rolled around, their store that they had built up, their treasure that they had stored up for themselves... It had rotted, it had putrefied, it was full of worms. You couldn't store the stuff up. Israel learned that early on. Don't accumulate more than you really need. Don't accumulate because God is saying, I will be there tomorrow. There will be more tomorrow and I'm good tomorrow, just like I'm good for it today. So don't accumulate more than you really need. We worry about having enough, but he says, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. It's the same with our money, it's the same with our time, it's the same with our energy. We, we want to hoard those things and hold them close against the day that we're going to need it. And he says, don't hoard. And why? Look at verse 20. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and thieves do not break in and steal. And it only means put first things first. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Look at what he says at the very tail end of all of this in verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added. So you will have enough. Trust me, he will make sure you have enough. So you don't have to worry about hoarding. We worry about how I'm going to make it. But in verse 25 he says, do not be worried about your life, as to what you will eat or what you will drink. Now, some people say that that verse 19 where he talks about don't store up, don't hoard, don't take more and accumulate more than you really need, some people say that discussion is targeting the people that have wealth. Because those are the people that if I've got a thousand, I want two thousand. 
And they say that that verse 19 is a discussion for people that have wealth. But this verse 25 where he says, for this reason, do not be worried about your life as to what you'll eat or what you will drink, that that is for the rest of us who don't have a lot of accumulated wealth. You see, the wealthy people are worrying about hoarding and getting more, but for the rest of us, the question is, will I even have enough? And God says, in answer to my question, I'm worried about having enough. He says, how, by the way, am I doing with the birds, let's say? Take a look at the birds. Look at them. Especially notice what they don't do. They don't plant. They don't harvest to make sure that they're going to get by. They don't even hoard to make sure they're going to have enough. They show no evidence of struggle, and for sure, they do not worry. Why? Because in their little bird brains and in their little bird hearts they know, read it with me, the Heavenly Father feeds them. And the rest of the story that Jesus tells there is not about birds, but about you and about me. Are you not worth much more than they? Then he brings up the topic of clothing. You see that? Actually, it's introduced as worrying about how you will cover your body. And it seems to me to be a bigger issue even than clothes. It's about appearances. How will people see me? How will people think of me? Now, there are some people that say, oh, fooey, I don't, I don't care what people think about me. But I will tell you, I did notice that everybody here has brushed their hair, and I noticed that uh, pretty much everybody's socks match. I assume you brushed your teeth, and for those that say, I don't care about what I look like, I noticed that none of you came in your bathrobe today. I am the only one in the bathrobe today. And so we can't say we don't care because we do care. You know, now that I'm thinking about it, I've always wanted to preach in a robe. <laughs> Maybe if you preach in a robe, people will actually listen to what you're saying. That's my thought. Or maybe we could do like the preschool. Maybe we could have pajama day someday at church and bring our robes. The point is that in spite of our protests, no, I really don't care what people think about me in spite of our protests, the Lord knows how we really feel about how we are seen by other people. He knows. He knows what a temptation it is to be constantly correcting and burnishing our own image. And, and it's a worry for us. How will other people see me? But here's why it needn't be. Go back to the flowers. When you pick a flower... It begins to die at that very moment that you pick it. And in spite of putting it in water, and even with that little packet of solution that the florists give you, to extend it, it will wilt soon. Within a day or so, it won't be much good. But Jesus says, but see the care that the Creator has taken with its appearance, even though its time, that flower's time, is very short. But you are eternal. You're eternal. You're not at all like that flower. We've got to remember 
But each of us, I am not a human being having a temporary spiritual experience. But I'm a spiritual eternal being having a temporary human experience. And and I will live much longer than that flower. Longer than that gorgeous, intricately fascinating flower that he takes so much care with. And if he guards that flower, he will guard and cover you and me. In fact, the Bible says he robes you in rightness so that when you are looked at, you are right, right where you need to be. And like that much abused father in the story of the wicked son who takes his inheritance and blows it all, the son comes home and the father comes back into the picture and the first thing he does is he calls for the best robe and the Lord calls for a good robe to cover you. Others would judge and tear you down and point out real or imagined flaws. They see all kinds of reasons why you don't look good. But he sees you through the lens of his son, and you are right, and you are beautiful. And Jesus says, so don't worry about how you look to other people. He'll take care of it. He'll take care of the appearances. In fact, worry only about how you appear to him. That's all you've got to worry about. Now the question in verse 27, I've got to tell you, is the one that really set me thinking and digging around this whole issue of why am I worried, and who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? Now there are a couple of different ways to translate that phrase from the original language, and one of them has to do with stature. In other words, who of you, by worrying, can add a cubit? 18 inches, 18 inches to your stature. Who of you can do that by worrying? Who could do that? Now think about that. Chris, how how long would you have to worry to add 18 inches to your height? Or, Or Gabriel, how long would you have to worry to take 18 inches off your height? How long would you have to do that? Or if it's talking about our lifespan, how much time has got to be spent in worrying to add days and years to my life? In fact, the matter is, worrying can take days off my life, can't it? But the point is, it makes no sense. It makes no sense to worry because it doesn't change anything. It doesn't make you taller. It doesn't make you live longer. Worry doesn't change anything, so it doesn't make any sense, and it doesn't make anything easier, and it doesn't make anything better. There's a wonderful old English word, we don't use it so much anymore, fret. Fret. And it comes from a very old English word, fretan, which means to eat or to gnaw. It means to be vexed, to be gnawed at by something from the inside out. And and sometimes it was used of a road surface that would become so loose that the potholes begin to develop. And that's what happens when we fret and when we worry. It gnaws holes in us from the inside out. And those holes invite a breakdown, and those holes can bring disaster. Worry can do all of that, and worry can do more. So why worry? Those are the things we worry about. You know what worry says? Look in verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? 
Worry says, I can't see. Jesus says, look at the birds. Look at the birds as a way of, of, of how I take care of you. Look at the birds. I take care of you on a grander scale than I take care of the birds even. Look, Jesus says, but worry won't allow you to see that. It won't allow you to see what he does for birds. It won't allow you to see what he does for you. It, worry, when you worry, it causes us to miss the wonder of the obvious. Now, I notice that there's no bird shortage. There seem to be just plenty of birds. No bird shortage now. I think he's doing okay with the birds. In another place, Jesus says, do you realize that not a sparrow, the smallest of birds, not a tiny bird falls to the ground from the tree without it being noticed by God? Jesus says, you don't think I see that? Worry does something even worse than blinding you to what God does for you. It keeps you, even though you may have perfect sight in other areas, it keeps you from even bothering to look. Jesus says, just look. And worry says, I won't look. And it places us in that dangerous place of rebellion, doesn't it? One thing it is to be blinded, but it's another thing entirely to gouge our own eyes out and refuse to look. And worry says, I can't see. Worry impairs your vision. Worry says, my life is small. My life doesn't really amount to much or matter much. But again, in that verse 25, Jesus says, isn't life more? Isn't life more than the basics of survival? Worry comes along and says, no, those are the important things. Stuff and needs and amassing things and grasping after possessions and, and what I can own and get my hands on and accumulate. No, that, that's, that's the sum total of life. That's what life is all about. That's what worry lays a claim to. Those basics are all that life amounts to for me. That causes the boundaries of our life to constrict and our life becomes very small if it's just the stuff that we can accumulate, and the few pleasures we can have, it isn't more than all of that. And that makes life, this wonderful gift of life, worry turns it into to such a cheap thing and reduces it just to the stuff that we can worry about. And so with this powerful question, Jesus is saying your life is much more than the things, than the things that cause us to worry. Your life is more than the pleasures it can know and the comforts that we can pamper this body with. And, and, it's, and, and our body is more than a rack for clothing. In fact, this human body is so significant. And, and what this book has to say about what the Lord is got in mind for our human body. It sets this book apart. It sets our faith apart because God is not just interested in the salvation of my soul, but He's interested in the redemption of our body. One day He will glorify this very body and He will change it. C.S. Lewis says that our desires aren't too wild for God. That's not the problem. 
that our desires are out of line. We, we settle for cheap pleasures like sex and food and drink, and we dream about those kind of things satisfying us. And he's saying that our desires to God are not too wild, but they're too tame for God. That he has in mind for us experiences that we could not imagine at this point. And we are like a child who is content to play in a mud puddle because he can't imagine what an offer of a free vacation at the ocean is all about. Eye has not seen, the Word says. Ear has not heard. Neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared. Listen, for those that love Him. He has got things in mind for us, for this body to enjoy. Your life is worth more than the stuff that we chase. Worry has got it all wrong. Your life, every life, is a big deal. Worry gets it wrong. Your life is a big thing. Worry comes along. and Worry says by its very presence that God is wrong. Look at verse 30, 26. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And worry comes along and says, God's wrong. Turn Jesus' question there in 26 into a statement, and it sounds something like this. You are worth more. You are more valuable than the birds that I take excellent care of. You're more valuable than all those birds. And when we worry about the food and all the rest of it, we're saying, God, you are mistaken here. You may take care of the birds very well, but you will not take care of me like that. The birds are all you care about. You see, worry makes God out to be a liar and a big liar. That's not true at all. Worry says, I can't see. Worry says, my life is small. Worry says, God is all wrong and His promises are no good. Worry is wrong. Let me briefly briefly tell you what reality is. Reality is, I can see. In Christ, I can see. Now, regaining our sight to see what God is really doing so we don't have to worry, it may be a multi-stage process. Like the man who was afflicted with blindness and Jesus comes along and touches his eyes. And the first and only time Jesus asked for a progress report on a healing. He said, how'd I do? (laughs) And the guy said, I see men as trees walking. In other words, things are blurry. Light and shadow and darkness, I see. Objects, I see. But I see people, and they look like giant trees walking to me. So Jesus, he did it again. Now how'd I do? Now I see all things clearly. Well, having our sight restored so that we can see the blessings of God around us and how God is actually working so we don't have to rely on worry. It may be a multi-stage process. Gaining the faculty of vision sharp enough to really see may take a little time. But the reality is I can see, and I can also see that life is beautiful. There's a good movie by that title. If you haven't seen it, see it. Life is beautiful. It's it's a story of a father and son that wind up in a Nazi camp. 
And uh, the father goes to incredible lengths to spare the child the obvious, that he is in one of the worst places on earth. And he does all kind of things to make it an enjoyable experience for his son in the camp. It's amazing. Life is beautiful. The fact is, even when it is hard, life with Christ is beautiful. Amen? It's the best kind of life. That's the way I describe it. Living with Jesus, that is the best kind of life. According to the U.S. Bureau of Standards, whoever those people are, but according to the U.S. Bureau of Standards, a dense fog, a hundred feet thick, 100 feet high, covering seven city blocks, if it were condensed into water, there wouldn't be quite enough to fill an average drinking glass. But that same fog, 100 feet thick, seven blocks square, can wreck everything, can it? Can't see anything. But all in the world it is is half a glass full of water. Our worries are like that. Like fog, our, our worries about things and about how we look and about how we'll get along. Our worries can so block our vision that we can't see the beautiful, breathtaking things that God is doing all around us. In our homes. He's working in our homes. Did you know that? He's working in our bodies. But if we worry, even in a quiet moment of worship, we will miss it all. Go outside on a crystal clear starlit night and look at the sky. You'll miss it. You'll miss that that's God if you're worrying. You ever look high up in the trees as the sun's going down and against a, an orange background? It's still down on the ground, but the very highest leaves up there, they're trembling in the wind that you can't feel. Well, that's God saying something. And we'll miss it. We'll miss it if we're fogged out by our worries. We'll miss the beauty of the God-man coming to earth. And he comes down to earth. Why? So he can hold a child in his arms. That is a beautiful thing. He comes to open the ears of the deaf so they can hear music for the first time. Life is beautiful. But our worries are a fog that causes us to miss it. And when you boil it all down, our worries aren't enough to fill a glass of water. Worries are wrong. Life is beautiful. I can see life is beautiful, and God is right about me. That's reality. I think the word of Jesus, verse 27, that got me started on all this, and who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? I think those words of Jesus are probably the most broken of all of his words to us. Certainly, they're the hardest to keep because we all worry. But he says, don't worry. I'm sure it's 
prejudice on my part, prejudice by where I was born. But there is an area of southern Indiana called Brown County that I think is the most beautiful place on the planet. It's rolling hills and and, uh, trees, and it's just gorgeous, especially in the fall of the year. It should just take your breath away. It's so pretty. It's about as pretty as it gets, I think. Well, there was a man that decided to take a scenic train that runs down through some of that on a 40 or 50 mile slow train ride so that you can see all the splashes of color. If you ever get a chance, it's the reds you want to look for. But he got on this scenic train ride that would slow ride him through beautiful Brown County. He got on, he wasn't very happy with his assigned seat, so he had to get hold of the conductor to trade seats, and that took a little time, and he finally got himself where he thought he would be happy, and, and then he switched around, and he adjusted himself, and then he had to fiddle, fiddle with the, the window covering. It wasn't quite right and level in the way he wanted it. Finally, he got that right. He had a little day bag with him, and he remembered he had just thrown things in there, and it was all disorganized, and that bothered him to think that. So he opened it up, and he organized it all and got it nice and neat in there. And then as he was finishing up, the zipper stuck on the stupid thing, so he had to play with that a while. And then there were some overhead luggage areas, and he didn't want to hold it, so he went looking for a place to put it. But everybody else had bags, and he tried rearranging. He ended up just stuffing it under his seat. They came along after a little bit, had something to drink, so he got a nice tea, but it wasn't quite right. He had to keep adding sweetener and taking it out and adding water, and finally he got it. And he settled in, finally, just as the train pulled into the station. And he turned to somebody near him, I'm sure greatly annoyed at this point. And he said, if I had known it would be over so soon, I wouldn't have wasted my time. You know, it's easy to get sidetracked with things. Difficult neighbors. I'm thinking of a man whose life is miserable because he has a feud with his neighbor that he need not have. But it's easy to get sidetracked. Difficult neighbors or a tight budget or an offhand comment that some clown makes. Signs of aging. People who seem to be wealthier and happier. All of those things bother us, but we need to remember this thing's going to be over too soon. Wise Moses prayed, Lord, teach us, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Jesus will say it this way, be anxious for nothing. And the Apostle Paul will pick up on that theme and he will say, be anxious for nothing, but with thanksgiving, let every request be brought to God and the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Don't be anxious and the peace of God will guard you. Let the Savior Himself guard your heart and your mind against worry. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. 
My peace I give you, not as the world gives. I'm going to ask the musicians to come back, sing the words that Jesus taught us here at the end of this little talk about worry. Why do you worry? And Jesus says, seek ye first the kingdom of God. And His righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Don't worry. Keep your mind on Him first. Why don't you stand with me? And He'll take care of everything, everything, everything. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. The kingdom of God is that place that should be ever expanding within our life where the King is in charge. Let Him be in charge. Seek Him first. He'll take care of everything else and you don't need to worry. Let's close ourselves in with Him and sing it as the worship team leads us. You've been listening to a slightly inspired message from Fairfax Assembly, a different kind of church in Bakersfield, California. Find out more at www.fairfaxassembly.com.